It's funny that uh, that just happened because I was thinking, as I was thinking about uh, this this Sunday and this lesson and all um, earlier this week, I you know I began to reflect upon um, just sort of the the some of the some of the things in my own personal schedule and some responsibilities that I've had over the last number of weeks. Um, kind of, you know, kind of a busy time, a time where I found myself on a number of occasions, sort of, you know, one right after another, it seems, where, you know, I was having to, you know, speak in some way or welcome or do some kind of public thing, you know, where I was kind of having to be on, you know, I was, I was like, it was, it was time, like everybody's going to be looking at me. And I thought to myself, you know, in, in thinking about this whole study in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and spiritual gifts, there's an element where in some circles that kind of becomes the expectation for believers. Is that, is that the evidence of you operating in the Spirit, it's characterized by you just being on. And I thought, that's an exhausting way to live. I, I just know that I, I hit a wall. I was totally exhausted after this period of time. And it just struck me as how... The, the nature of some of our thinking around spiritual life or genuine spiritual life, and particularly as we think about this in light of this study in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it can often take on sort of a shape or a form that is oriented around some form of hype or some form of you know, emotional high or, or always being you know, happy or upbeat or whatever, some kind of really... Uh, I don't know, emotional state that really lacks a certain substance. And I just think that, that if, you're, if we're looking for maybe, I, I like to sort of uh, be, be checked, have my thinking checked by uh, not just the truths of Scripture, but the, the, the wisdom that flows out of Scripture that just seems so obvious. Like you can't live on some kind of plane. Like your physical body, my emotional makeup, my mental makeup, I say mine. I mean, you might be able to live like this, but I know I couldn't. I'd be exhausted all the time if I tried to live like that. So I'm just comforted by the fact that as we come to uh, this, this study in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 on spiritual gifts, that that's not what we're called to. <laughs> that's not what this is about. And in fact, we're going to be looking, I think, a little more closely at, at some of the elements of that uh, in our time today. Uh, just to remind you guys, we've been obviously looking uh, most deeply and, and sort of detail in a detailed fashion, this listing of spiritual gifts that you find really starting, I guess you'd say technically, uh, in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 8. And it continues on through uh, verse 11. And so you have this listing of gifts such as the utterance of wisdom, uh, the utterance of knowledge, faith. Gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy, the ability to distinguish between spirits, various kinds of tongues, the interpretation of tongues. You have this listing of gifts that the Apostle Paul gives here in this larger study, this larger instruction, that he gives as an illustration of the point that we've been kind of re rehashing and emphasizing over and over again, and that is that they're there are a variety of gifts, a variety of contexts in which those gifts are used. They're apportioned in various ways, uh, in various types of gifts, but they're all given sovereignly by the same Spirit, by one and the same Spirit. And so there is no distinction, if you will, in the giver of the gift. The uniform purpose of the gift as well is what's prominent in this section, and that is it's for the common good. The gifts are given for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ. And that is where we find ourselves going. And as I said before, when we get to, particularly when we get to chapter 14, we will dig much more deeply into this whole matter of tongues and prophecy. The Apostle Paul deals extensively with those two gifts and the outworking of those gifts in the context of the local church, the local assembly, particularly in the context of the local assembly in worship. We'll look at that in much more detail when we get there. Uh, for the time being, we just kind of have, have stayed in this vein of looking at these various gifts and trying to see how Scripture sort of describes them, 
characterizes them, maybe how they're even manifest in certain cases, either either described by the Apostle Paul in the near context of 1 Corinthians or maybe manifest more broadly uh, in other parts of the New Testament. But really just trying to say, okay, this is what we're seeing in Scripture. How does that compare to some of the manifestations or exhibitions or, or beliefs or convictions about spiritual gifts in other circles, and particularly, particularly in maybe the more charismatic circles that seem to place a, a heavy emphasis on the more, more I guess, you more uh, uh, exhibitionary types of gifts like tongues and healings and miracles and that kind of thing. So we just want to kind of have a, a baseline of biblical framework, if you will, for understanding spiritual gifts so that then as we look at, think about, evaluate, or expose to, or in conversations with others about spiritual gifts that might be coming from a different vantage point, we're, kind of, we're sort of well-grounded, we're well-rooted in, in Scripture, and we're not just arguing against someone else's perspective based upon our own sort of experience, our own sort of faith tradition, our own sort of church experience. But we're arguing or we're discussing this from an understanding of the Scriptures and how the Scriptures describes them. But the Apostle Paul turns the corner as you get to chapter 12, verse 12, and he begins to pick up this This body metaphor, this very familiar metaphor describing the church as the body of Christ. And he gets into pretty significant detail regarding this body as he's talking about the importance of every part of the body. But notice in the first two verses there uh, in in this new section in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 13. I want to pick up a portion of that as kind of an extension of some of the things that we talked about last week and really to transition us into this next section uh, in this particular chapter. In 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And then listen to verse 13. For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So the Apostle Paul is now reemphasizing this oneness of the body of Christ, but really more pointedly, oneness of the body of Christ who were all baptized into this one spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then he breaks it down by Jews, Greeks, slaves or free. So he says, no matter how many different categories, no matter how many different ethnicities, no matter how many different social strata, everyone in the body of Christ is baptized into one body by the Spirit. Now, the interesting thing about the study that we've been in, and particularly some of the things we talked about last week, as you round out this listing of gifts in verses 8 through 11, you, you, we, find ourselves, we found ourselves in verse 10 the last part of verse 10, where he speaks of various kinds of tongues. And then, of course, the interpretation of tongues, which is really just another word for the translation of tongues. And we talked at length last week about the nature of tongues, both in terms of its, its meaning in the text as well as its, its manifestation, for example, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. We talked about tongues as being an actual reference to languages, a known language. And so, therefore, the translation or the, the interpretation element is the making clear through interpretation, through translation, what is unclear without it. Uh, in, in a setting where tongues are being spoken that no one can understand, we looked at how the Apostle Paul in, in chapter 14 said, I'd rather you not speak at all than to speak words that are not intelligible and that are not designed to build up the body, that are not useful for edifying the body of Christ. And so he says, and we'll see this in in chapter 14, there must be an interpreter. Speaking in tongues is just unknown gibberish to those that are gathered in the assembly is not for the common good. It doesn't build up the body of Christ. And so it certainly would stand to reason that if something of that sort was being used to identify or I would say even separate out or differentiate believers from other believers in terms of their unique giftedness, then you can see how this goes totally counter 
to both the heart of the doctrinal discourse that the Apostle Paul has us in, namely, that we are all, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we are all baptized by one spirit into this body. I mean, this profound theological reality of the church being now demonstrating, or excuse me, now demonstrating characteristics that totally counter that profound reality, and that is separating ourselves from one another by virtue of our giftedness, our public demonstration of our giftedness. And so that's why we've been talking about how Paul is really exercised over this. This is a point of profound concern in the heart of the Apostle Paul because it, it, it divides. It doesn't put on display the unity in the body of Christ. It creates envy and jealousy and rivalries which were massively problematic in the Corinthian church. Now, when you bring this back to a fundamental view of doctrinal belief and conviction, this is also what I find to be so, I guess, ironic in a way, but really more significantly, more concerning about the, the, the way that this particular gift of tongues is conveyed and taught in many circles as an evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as the essential evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to talk at length about that today because I think that this this distinction between the manifestation of the gifts, whether or not certain gifts are for today or not, which we're going to talk about that in in the future, probably when we start looking at chapter 14, we'll talk about the the various views of that. This, This understanding of What it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit is a foundational doctrinal truth for every believer. It's one of those things where if any kind of confusion or error is introduced into the ether or into our thinking or into our questioning and wondering about what we believe about this, if, if any kind of confusion is introduced at this particular point, then we need to recognize that we're experiencing confusion around a very essential doctrinal truth. What it means to be baptized in the Spirit into the body of Christ. That couldn't be more significant or substantial. Now, I want to read a little excerpt from Anthony Hokema's book, Holy Spirit Baptism. This was written in 1972. This is a very fascinating time in the history of the church in the United States of America, Um, As we talked about last week, you had in 1901, at the very turn of the century, you had this, what's considered to be the beginning of this new Pentecostal movement, uh, where you had some students that were gathered, some Bible students that were gathered, and there were claims of of a a new baptism of the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in in unknown tongues, particularly Chinese was the, the language that was claimed to have been spoken. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but but. As, that, as, the, as the new century got underway in the United States of America, you had this movement begin to grow and explode and cross a, a range of denominations. And so you had more and more theologians and writers sort of dealing with, grappling with, advocating for, counter-arguing doctrinal positions. I mean, that really exploded in terms of um, theological writing and polemical debate over the rightness or the wrongness of things. And then this particular book by Anthony, Anthony Hokema was written in 1972. This is three years after John MacArthur arrived at Grace Community Church in Southern California. And if anybody knows who's been one of the primary uh, lightning rods in terms of countermanding a lot of the, the excesses in charismatic theology, it's John MacArthur. And the Azusa Street Revival that we'll reference in just a moment, that kind of launched shortly after, like in 1914, I think is when that got underway, that, that took place, so that launched in Van Nuys, California, which is like right there where Grace Community Church is. So all these things that, that MacArthur was contending with, it was like his backyard kind of stuff. 
he gets a kind of a bad rap for kind of going after people or whatever, but this was pastoral ministry on full display in that particular time. So here you have Anthony Hokema just a few years after John MacArthur arrives at Grace Community Church, and he's writing this book called Holy Spirit Baptism to address some of these this confusion and these doctrinal things that were being propagated in, in, the, in the church in that day and time. Listen to what he says. And again, referencing some of the things that we talked about last week. He says, in January, uh, January 1st, 1901, is often given as the birthday of the Pentecostal movement. On this day, Agnes Osmond, a student of Charles F. Parham's Bible College in Topeka, Kansas, began to speak in tongues after Parham had laid hand, his hands upon her. April 3rd, 1960, could be thought of as the birthday of Neo-Pentecostalism, the movement in which the Pentecostal teachings and practices spilled over into Pentecostal churches. On that day, excuse me, spilled over into non-Pentecostal churches. On that day, Dennis Bennett, the rector of St. Mark's Episcopal... No, I'm sorry. This, this is where... This, I got my history wrong. It was this particular transition in 1960 where it spilled over into non-Pentecostal churches that really took, took the, kind of the area up by storm. This, this rector, on that day, Dennis Bennett, the rector of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California, resigned his rectorship because of dissension in the congregation occasioned by his having begun to speak with tongues. Since that day, the neo-Pentecostal movement has become widespread. Members of many non-Pentecostal Protestant churches and more recently members of many Roman Catholic churches have been claiming to have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues and have been meeting together in neo-Pentecostal fellowship groups. Because neo-Pentecostalism emphasizes the value of certain special gifts of the Spirit or charismata, a common a common New Testament word for such gifts, it is increasingly becoming known as the charismatic movement. So there's Hokema starting you know, to talk about, this is, this is now becoming known as the charismatic movement. So that was back in 1972. So they're sort of contending with all this. They're trying to understand this. They're trying to reason from the scriptures about what's, what's actually happening during that, that day and time. Now, the Assemblies of God is one of the largest Pentecostal denominations in the United States. And from the, uh, what he said, now listen to what he says though. I'm going to read this one last quote from Hokema. He says, The central doctrine of Neo Pentecostalism is its teaching on the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So basic is this teaching to the Neo Pentecostal movement that if you take this doctrine away from it, what you have left is no longer Neo Pentecostalism. Now, the Assemblies of God, as I said, is one of the largest Pentecostal denominations in the United States. This is from their own website. Quote, the doctrine of the baptism in the Holy Spirit is our distinctive. That's their own words. That is our distinctive. Now, the Assemblies of God denomination, just to kind of fill in some gaps there, uh, it was founded in 1914. It was essentially an offshoot of the Azusa Street Revival that uh, was led by a a man named William J. Seymour, which that was basically an offshoot of Charles Fox Parham's apostolic faith movement that began in 1901, we just referenced and we talked about last week. So you have this, this, this tied-together sort of movement that's kind of underway. So the Assemblies of God was, was founded as an offshoot or out of that movement. Listen to from the history page of the, the Assemblies of God website. Quote, throughout the latter half of the 19th century in the United States, Protestants from various backgrounds began to ask themselves why their churches did not seem to exhibit the same vibrant, faith-filled life as those in the New Testament. Many of these believers joined evangelical or holiness churches, engaged in ardent prayer and personal sacrifice, and earnestly sought God. It was in this context that people began experiencing biblical spiritual gifts. Pentecostals' pioneers were hungry for authentic Christianity. And they looked to previous spiritual outpourings, such as the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and the Second Great Awakening for inspiration and instruction. Now, this, the, the reason why I bring up the Assemblies of God, number one, is because it's one of the largest Pentecostal denominations. It's, it's a reputable Pentecostal denomination, in fact. Um, 
And in fact, they actually, uh, they actually uh, made some very uh, significant doctrinal decisions very early on that kept them in a more orthodox uh, theological place than what others went off to. So they, they, they actually uh, are to be commended for that, for sure. But this, this focus on Holy Spirit baptism as a, as a, as a distinctive is very clear. And, and this thread that runs through, I think, every individual, every church, every denomination that is associated in any way with charismatic belief or practice, unless you just grew up in that tradition and that's all you've known. Okay, I'm going to make that one distinction. I mean, there are people that they, they grew up in a particular church, in a particular tradition, a particular way of, of experiencing spiritual life and worship and that kind of thing, and, and maybe they've just never really evaluated it, they've never questioned it, they've never studied you know, other views. I mean, maybe that's just kind of where they are. So I'll, I'll grant that there is a, a place there for those who have just sort of grown up in it and they've never sort of questioned it. But, and so I, this, this, what I'm about to describe, may not be necessarily fully characteristic of where they're coming from. But, but as I read from the Assemblies of God website, where that particular denomination began and where the, the students at, at, uh, at the Bible school in Topeka, Kansas with Parham began, and where you, you hear testimony after testimony from people, where it typically begins is with this, this sense that something of a spiritual nature is missing from my experience. There's something missing from my Christian experience. And what must be missing that I'm not experiencing is that I'm not experiencing what the first century Christians experienced in Acts. They look back to that time, they look to the scriptures of that time, and they see what they believe to be authentic Christianity. Now this plays itself out in a whole bunch of different ways. You'll have people that'll say, you know what, a true, authentic New Testament church is only a church that meets house to house. Okay? So forget for a second, you know, the, the manifestation of tongues or something like that. Just take the, the meeting from house to house and devoting themselves to the, the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread and a prayer. That's another one. If you don't take communion every time you meet, then you're not really following the early church's authentic version of Christianity. This kind of, this kind of view, when looking back to, for example, these salient uh, passages in Acts chapter 2, or really the entire uh, history of the early church in Acts, there, there, there is this reference point back to that time as not just significant historical narrative about the, the founding and beginnings of the early church, but as precedent setting as determinative of, of what the tests are to determine whether a faith or a practice is authentic, is true, is right, is real. But it always begins invariably with what might otherwise be a sincere desire to, to know the Lord better, to walk with the Lord more closely, to to walk in, in greater faithfulness, greater power. Maybe, maybe someone is experiencing sort of a, a constant stumbling into the same sort of nagging sins. And so there's like, there's got to be something more. How can I overcome these things, right? So I'm not even necessarily uh, criticizing the, the, the motivation behind desiring something more. I'm merely making the point that it is, it is the absence of some kind of perceived experience that is seen to be missing from someone's life, someone's Christian experience, that serves as a motivator to seek that kind of experience and, and to be sort of gratified in that experience in some way, to have some kind of assurance that this now is the real thing. You follow me? That, that's what I'm trying to kind of, kind of emphasize here. So there, that's where it began, for example, with the Assemblies of God denomination. That's based on the history from their own website. Now, from the Assemblies of God statement of 16 fundamental truths, that's sort of their doctrinal statement. This is, again, from their website. Number seven of 16 is entitled, The Baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is what it says. All believers are entitled to and should ardently expect and earnestly seek the promise of the Father, the baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire according to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
This was the normal experience of all in the early Christian church. With it comes the endowment of power for life and service, the bestowment of the gifts and their uses in the work of the ministry. This experience is distinct from and subsequent to the experience of the new birth. That is the critical... I mean, there's other things in that first paragraph that I could, you know, we could talk about for sure. But that is the critical distinction in this doctrinal position. The experience of this baptism of the Holy Spirit is an experience that is distinct from and subsequent to the experience of the new birth. That's the doctrinal conviction of mainline Pentecostalism. Okay? Number eight in their 16 fundamental truths, they say this. This is under the title, The Initial Physical Evidence of the Baptism in the Holy Spirit. Quote, The baptism of believers in the Holy Spirit is witnessed by the initial physical sign of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives them utterance. The speaking in tongues in this instance is the same in essence as the gift of tongues, but is different in purpose and use. We talked about that last week a little bit, how they cannot claim that it's the same as Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost was people were waiting in a room, and the Spirit fell on them, and they were given the ability to speak in languages that people from all over the place, named locales, were able to understand. What we're seeing now and what is practiced in in many churches like uh, Assemblies of God churches and others like them is not the same thing. So they have to claim that it's the same in essence, but it's different in purpose and use. Anthony Hokema again says this, What then is the value of this beyond conversion experience? Why must every believer seek it? To answer this question, let me first of all quote from Lawrence Christensen in his book, Speaking in Tongues and Its Significance for the Church. Quote, The baptism with the Holy Spirit is a specific link in a chain of experience which unites the believer to Christ. End quote. Hokema goes on, The clear implication of this statement is that without the experience of spirit baptism, Christians are missing an important link in their relationship with Christ. Though it may be granted that one can be saved without this experience, it is implied that one has not entered into the fullness of his relationship to Christ and the Holy Spirit unless he has has had this experience. Commonly, it is said by Neo-Pentecostals that the experience of the Spirit baptism means a deepened awareness of the love of God, coupled with the reception of new power for life and service, particularly power for witnessing to others about the great things Christ has done. It is also claimed by Neo-Pentecostals that the baptism with or in the Spirit brings with it the full indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the full bestowal of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So this this is where I get really concerned about this kind of teaching because basically it is conveying to believers that unless or until you have this baptism of the Holy Spirit experience, that there is an incompleteness to your spiritual life, and an incompleteness, an unwholeness, a lack of total fulfillment, if you will, in your spiritual life in Christ. Now, I want to ask you guys a question. How many of you in your spiritual walk have ever felt like you were missing something, like you were languishing, like you were not as close to the Lord as you really should be or needed to be? How many? Raise your hand if you've experienced that, please. And those of you that aren't raising your hand, you're lying. You, you, you've you got to be. I mean, you've just got to be, right? I mean, if you're offended by that, just cut me some slack. But, I mean, I'm just telling you. What I'm trying to describe, maybe I didn't describe it exactly right, but we all constantly, I don't know about you, but I constantly have feelings and thoughts of inadequacy before the Lord. Routinely. I want you to imagine... The alternative. If in my spiritual prayer life and 
reflection and meditation, I'm coming before the Lord and coming before his perfect holy word and thinking, I'm doing awesome. I'm, this is great. I can't believe how verse after verse after verse only perfectly describes me and how great I'm doing. I mean, again, I know I'm being a little bit you know, hyperbolic and exaggerating uh, you know, the, probably the sentiment of people's hearts. But, but just, I, I guess what I'm getting at is, in my spiritual journey, what I have found is that the, the more I've quote-unquote grown, the less I've felt like I've grown. The more I persi- per, uh, presumably have grown in wisdom, the less wise I actually feel. The more dependent upon the Lord and His wisdom, I, I, I just feel an urgent dependency. And this is characteristic of, of anyone that teaches anything about wisdom or growth and maturity. In fact, there is a, there's, there's a, um, a principle that I, I remember coming across a number of years ago about this matter of being self-conscious, like constantly evaluating yourself and how you're doing with the Lord. And, and, and the writer talked about how, you know, the maturity in Christ doesn't mean that you're becoming more self-conscious and self-aware of how you're doing with the Lord. It's that you become completely less aware of yourself altogether. You're less conscious of yourself and how you are or are not measuring up. You're just characterized by persistent and utter and complete dependence and mortifying the flesh and crying out to God for help. That's basically the tone and tenor of your spiritual walk. So think about this this principle of sort of setting up in the hearts and minds of any believer, regardless of their faith tradition or their theological stripe, that says you are not quite there yet unless or until you have this. Every one of us would be like, Okay, yeah, I definitely feel that way. So I guess I, yeah, I'm I'm missing something for sure. This to me is, I don't think that this is the intent. Again, don't hear me say that these people in these churches and these these denominations are necessarily intending (laughs) to do this. But it certainly opens up a a place of, of preying on people's natural and constant vulnerabilities in this area. And then instructing them in ways that are not going to satisfy what is the longing of one's heart. What is the battle that one is contending with. So, we have to be mindful of this distinction, and it's really troubling. Frederick Dale Bruner, in his book, A Theology of the Holy Spirit, says this, The Pentecostal movement believes that it has found precedent and authority for its conviction that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a critical experience subsequent to and or distinct from conversion, granting the believer the benefits of a permanent, personal, and full indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and so providing power for Christian service, particularly evangelistic service, with the equipment of the spiritual gifts, end quote. Now, while I was talking about the very beginning about the exhaustion of having to kind of be on your game all the time. Here's what I would say. I don't have data on this, but I just kind of am drawing from just anecdotal experience. Those that have some experience that they believe is an experience of the Holy Spirit that, that results in, in some kind of you know, outburst of ecstatic language and and some kind of sense of infused new power and energy and enthusiasm for the Lord and for the ministries of the church and for evangelism and and all of those kinds of things. I don't doubt that people have those kinds of experiences. What I doubt is if that's sustainable. What I'm quite confident in is that anyone and everyone that has those experiences has to constantly go back to the same well for another experience. Because no one can sustain that kind of urgency and intensity and enthusiasm. and It's like it's impossible for people to sustain that, sustain that. On this side of heaven, on this side of the full glorification of our bodies, of being completely restored, of being known as we are fully known, of being made fully like Christ, where, where right now we're in this body of flesh 
where there is sin and we're grappling with it, and there's people all around us who are grappling with sin, and they're bumping into us, and we're bumping into them all the time. So if that is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I ask the question, why is that not sustained? Because I am quite certain that the, the feeling and the experience of it that people would give testimony to, it is not sustained. They leave that service, they leave that church, they leave that small group, and they go from that experience, and the next thing you know, their kid is being disobedient, and they're getting angry. And they're lashing out and disciplining their child in anger or something of the sort, right? I mean, like, in other words, they leave the moment and then life in a fallen world crashes in on them. The sin that's still resident in their as yet not fully redeemed flesh percolates up and they, they succumb to the temptation and they fall and they, they spiral into sort of guilt and shame and they... They wrestle with the fact that, that somehow they don't, maybe they didn't get the Spirit. You see what I'm saying? It's like, th- this is unsustainable doctrine on a practical level. As we have seen, spiritual, emotional, felt experience is the prominent feature in Pentecostal charismatic belief and practice. But we have to recognize that our experiences must always be tested by and and subjected to the objective, authoritative truth of Scripture and never the other way around. So, what does Scripture teach about baptism in the Holy Spirit? Well, we're going to survey a few things. We're not going to be able to do a full sort of uh, deep dive on this, but just to give us some thoughts and some clarity around this. The first thing we kind of alluded to last week. The Bible clearly teaches that there was to be a unique, unique bestowal of the Holy Spirit upon the church in the New Testament era. So in other words, what happened at Pentecost that we read of in Acts chapter 2 was known to be coming. It was planned for, it was ordained, it was predicted, it was, it was coming, and it was to be a unique bestowal of the Holy Spirit upon the church. Joel 2, 28-29 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. Now in its context, this is a radical prophetic statement by Joel. Radical prophetic statement. On all flesh, not just religious leaders, sons and daughters, how are we going to keep the women down if that's happening? (laughs) On male and female servants? Are you kidding me? This is a a stunning statement prophecy from Joel. And of course, as we know, Peter picks up on this very prophecy at the, in his sermon at Pentecost, and he says that this was fulfilled in your hearing. When the disciples, when the, when the Spirit fell on the disciples in a profound, sort of thunderous kind of way, and they began to speak in other languages that were being understood as they praised God and gave glory to God and spoke of the wonderful works of God in a tongue that they did not understand, but those that were gathered there for the celebration of Pentecost from all those other places that he names in the text, they understood in their own language. And there were people there that were saying, what is happening? Are these men drunk? They, they literally thought that, these, that these, the, this, this exhibition of the Spirit's power, which was enabling them to speak in the languages of, the, of others that were gathered there, they literally thought, because it was probably sounding to, lot, to those that didn't know those languages, it was obviously sounding like gibberish. you got to remember, they didn't have like you know, web apps to do. You know, they didn't have Google Translate. I mean, you hear a foreign language, and it's going to sound like gibberish. They weren't around that all the time. 
And so Peter says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, he says, it says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Verse 15, For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Verse 16, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. What Peter is saying there is, what was prophesied, this stunning Old Testament prophecy of this stunning new work of the Spirit of God to come upon men and women, sons and daughters, slaves and free people, was to be an event that is unmatched. And Peter is just saying, It's happening. This is what's happening. Christ himself predicted this. He predicted that the Spirit would be poured out on the church after his own return to the Father. In John chapter 16, verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go away, I will send him to you. And then in John chapter 14, 16 to 17, he says, And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Something big is coming. Earlier in his gospel, John himself, he made the point that the outpouring of the spirit could not occur until after Jesus was glorified. John chapter 7 verse 39 Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in other words, there was something that was happening at the time of Jesus' birth, then at the time of his baptism, and at the time of his ministry, and at the time of his arrest and trial and crucifixion, and at the time of his resurrection, and then eventually at the time of his glorification and his ascension. These are monumental events in the redemptive plan of God. And as I said last time, to have this become sort of like commonplace is to completely miss the mark here. Anthony Hokema, again, in his work, says this, This outpouring of the Holy Spirit, predicted both by the prophet Joel and by Christ, took place on the day of Pentecost, as recorded in the second chapter of the book of Acts. Though the Holy Spirit had been present in the church previous to this time, on Pentecost Day, He was bestowed on the church in His fullness. From this moment on, the Spirit was to dwell in the church as His temple and to take up His permanent residence in every member of that church. This outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost Day, therefore, was a historical event of the greatest importance, unique, unrepeatable, once for all. It may be thought of as an event comparable in magnitude to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this, this, should, this should help give us perspective of what has been taken to be the standard for what we are to experience in this principle of spirit baptism. And and I'll just go ahead and go a step further. This kind of thing is the burden that people who believe this are bearing. And it is what is often driving their approach to try to reproduce this over and over and over again. That's what I mean by this has to be an exhausting way to think about spiritual life in the heart and mind of a believer who is still grappling with the sinful flesh and the the effects of a fallen world all around them. It's got to be exhausting. Well, was this Pentecostal baptism in the Spirit ever repeated? I think you know my opinion on that. There's one explicit reference in the book of Acts to a, a kind of a, a slight repetition of this, but it's got uh, distinctiveness and purpose as well. 
So in Acts chapter 11, you find Peter. He's at Jerusalem. And he's recounting to the Christians in Judea what had happened at the house of Cornelius in Caesarea, which is accounted in, in Acts chapter 10. So he's recounting what had happened a few days before. And he says, he says, as I began to speak to Cornelius and his household, this is what Peter says, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This, this gives you an indication that, that, that even Peter was recognizing that this was the fulfillment of something that Christ had prophesied, that he had predicted would happen. That this wasn't the laying down of New Testament doctrine around the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This was the narrative writing out of what actually happened in the events. This gets to another point to make in terms of how these doctrines or these understandings are articulated and supported from Scripture. They make constantly the hermeneutical mistake of going to historical narrative and using historical narrative as precedent-setting doctrinal truth to be lived out in the life of the church. That's what they do. Now, that one hermeneutic mistake, that one biblical interpretive mistake, imagine applying that to a whole bunch of other places in historical narrative throughout Scripture, Old or New Testament. I mean, what do you do with David on the rooftop when he should have been away at war with his mighty men, but he's staring down on another roof watching Bathsheba bathe? What, what, what does that tell us? I mean, it happened. Well, what are we supposed to do with that? Is that a precedent for us in any way? Now, I use that as obviously an extreme an almost ridiculous example, but it makes the point of how we can approach historical narrative and we don't interpret it like it's historical narrative. We interpret it like we would interpret the Apostle Paul saying, you know, be kind to one another, love each other like Christ loved you, which is command, which is didactic instruction for the people of God and the church of God. Even in the... the doctrinal statement that I was reading from, from the Assemblies of God. They go to these references and acts to support their doctrinal position. And they're just citing what Luke is recounting as events that actually happened. They're not even written in such a way that would say, this now is what the church should do, or this now is how the Holy Spirit will baptize you. There's none of that. Even when you look at this account in Acts chapter 10... Where Cornelius, you have the event of the Holy Spirit coming uh, on the household of Cornelius. In verses 44 through 48, it kind of describes, I'm just kind of doing a little bit of a brief excerpt from it. In Acts chapter 10, verse 44, it says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Now, is that a significant thing? Go back to Joel, chapter 2. I will pour out my spirit on all men. This kind of thing, you see it right there. The believers from among the circumcised, the Jewish believers, are now witnessing the Holy Spirit come to a Gentile in his household. This was a sign to Jewish believers. This is not just for you. This is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. He says, For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So here's a case where a similar kind of Pentecost, sort of a Gentile, small Pentecost kind of happened as a sign to both Peter and the circumcised Jews that were there. And Peter says, while he was still saying these things, like he, he wasn't expecting this. Peter didn't say, come up to the front and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's not what was happening. Peter's like, whoa. And even his recounting of it in Acts chapter 11 says, Then I remembered. 
I remembered what the Lord said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now I'm starting to see what's going on here. And yet an entire doctrinal position around what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit has been built on narrative that is saying something totally different. And then you come back to 1 Corinthians, our our passage that we're going to be looking at and kind of springing into as we go forward. Thinking once again about Paul's profound concern about what he was hearing about amongst the believers in Corinth. You go back to chapter 1 and you see that. He was profoundly concerned about the divisions that were among them. And basically, the rest of the letter, for the most part, is an unpacking of or a description of and then a correction of their divisions and how they needed to sort that out and come in line with what God called them to as his people. It was just situation after situation after situation after situation. Manifestation of of divisiveness, of self-centeredness, of pride and arrogance, of setting one over over another in the church, over and over and over again. So you have the Apostle Paul gravely concerned about any form of teaching, any form of practice within the life of the church that would support that, that would propagate that, that would advance that in any way. Any kind of divisions, any kind of separating believers from one another. There was already enough in their societal sort of norms to do that, that they had to fight through. There was class system. There, was, there were actual slaves that were now in the church, and they were, they were to be disregarded constantly. How do you come together in unity in the body of Christ with that? They had plenty enough to contend with just from the standpoint that they were being saved out of a societal system that naturally fractured people into different groups. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, these kinds of things. So here he comes back again and he says, for just, and when I'm talking about spiritual gifts, there's variety but one spirit. And let me tell you how this plays out or what the impact is to you as God's people. Just as the body is one and has many members, yes, there are differences. Yes, there are distinctions. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is a theological reality. This is not an experiential reality. You go back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, and what you see there is the Apostle Paul addressing these believers as saints, those who are in Christ, those who are identified with all who name the name of Christ. And then he goes on to talk about how messed up they are. He is declaring at the very beginning in his salutation to them what is a sovereignly ordained and provided for theological reality about who they are that is in spite of the trouble that they're having in working that out and walking that out. The same is true for this matter of gifts. So we are called to be one body, and we'll begin to study that next week. Let's pray. It's time to go.